you want to be a filmmaker, just start being a filmmaker. Some of the best filmmakers that I admire the most never went to film school. Hey, I'm Jenny Butler. And I'm Sky Dylan Robbins. So, Sky, you're a video journalist at NBC. Mm-hmm. And Jenny, you're a video journalist at Now This. And we're both filmmakers. Well, I make internet videos. Okay, right, of course. But but we both make videos during a really exciting time in the media today because the tools that we have are ample and, and the platforms that we can put our work out on are seemingly endless and More than that, there are so many amazing filmmakers and video journalists and documentarians and whatever you want to call all of us out there. And that's why you started the Video Consortium, right? Exactly, right. Um, About four years ago, when I was at The New Yorker, at one point I was the only video person there. And I remember being surrounded by writers and thinking, where are all of the other video people? And so I called some friends who were at The Times and, and Vox and Mike, and we sat together on one cold, wintry January evening at the back of a bar in the East Village in New York City, and we talked about the future of video. And this was right when short form was just beginning to become something that everyone in the media was excited about. And and so it went really well. And we did it again the next month and then the next month, and we incorporated screenings and then fast forward four years. And as of last year, we are a nonprofit, uh, 501c3. We are in five, soon six cities around the world uh, with over 2,000 filmmakers. We have spread completely through word of mouth. And it's just this really amazing community of, of very talented people that is growing very rapidly. And, and I'm extremely excited about our newest project that's coming out of the Video Consortium, which is this podcast, which you are hosting. So, Jenny, tell me what's in store. What is this all about? So this is episode one of season one of Rough Cut. Brought to you by the Video Consortium. Right. And what does Rough Cut allude to? The name alludes to the version of your work that you don't want anyone to see, the version that isn't finished yet. And in a way, it's it's kind of a behind-the-scenes look, right? Exactly. It's about getting in the heads of us. Us meaning the people that make the work that you see every single day. The, the stuff that you see on the internet, like in, in all of your social feeds and even in theaters, right? And and on YouTube and Netflix, film festivals from Sundance to Cannes to TIFF, everywhere, right? Yeah. So, okay. So, Jenny, podcast. How is this going to work? So basically, every two weeks, I sit down with an established nonfiction filmmaker. And member of the Video Consortium. Right. And we talk about what went into a recent film. But it's not just about the film, right, Jenny? I mean, we, we also go into the human behind the film, who they are and and how they do the things they do. And, and I guess more importantly, why? Right, because it's kind of a crazy thing, right, to, like, actually make a film. <laughs> right. I've heard that it's like giving birth. feels like it is, although we don't quite know yet. We don't know yet. No. So speaking of doing crazy things, our first guest has filmed during the Syrian war, in drug tunnels, at protests, and at the inauguration of Donald Trump. And his name is Spencer Chumbly, and he's been a consortium member for three years. Yeah, so he's an independent cinematographer who currently shoots for Vice and the Travel Channel. And his work has taken him to far-flung places and some pretty precarious situations. But where is he now? 
Well, I gave him a call, and he was at his home in Montreal, and we had a chat. So, this is episode one of Rough Cut. Spencer, how do you feel about being the first guest of a new podcast? Oh, I'm honored. Uh, I appreciate you know you guys thinking about me and reaching out, and I uh, I'm always willing to to talk about you know, work, work, my work's a big part of my life. And I can't really imagine doing anything else at this time. And I'm not sure I really expected to be doing what I was doing, uh, doing today 10 years ago. So yeah, so let's just get into it. How did you get into cinematography and specifically shooting in these kind of like hostile environments? Well, I think a lot of people have the benefit of, you know, taking classes in high school and college, or at least knowing that they really wanted to get into making movies, I guess, early on in their lives. And I, I really wasn't, I mean, I I definitely watched films and, but I can't really remember even watching a documentary until maybe I got into undergraduate school and and went to college. And and I never really thought about it. I just kind of saw it as an entertaining way to learn something to kind of supplement my education. Oh, I'll watch a documentary about the weather underground or um, some sort of political movement, and that'll help me understand what I'm learning in class more. Um, I was kind of really set in high school on being a graphic designer. And then um, I did some traveling with my sister. Um, I had dropped out of college and uh, become a line cook at a local cafe. And that was kind of an impetus for me to, I went to London with her and the Czech Republic and to visit my uncle who lives in France. And then I kind of realized that maybe actually I'm more interested in international affairs and ended up uh, graduating with an economics degree and then went on to graduate school for uh, uh, international development and violence um, kind of course in in London. And I really had my heart set on being some sort of aid worker or working in the NGO community. And so most of my education to that point was um, really just focused on international affairs. Um, But uh, in grad school, I, you know, had taken photography classes in high school and I went and bought a SLR and from Sony. And this is, you know, maybe the same time that the 5D came out. And then I wanted to get a new one because I was photographing street protests in London. And uh, I finally bought a a Nikon D7000 and it shot video. And I kind of, you know, my dream went from being a, an aid worker to being a photojournalist. And then, you know, trying to do that for a year and realizing how difficult that industry is to break into, I finally just kind of started teaching myself how to shoot video. What drew you to protests as a subject matter? I mean, usually when people are traveling Europe, you know, they're taking pictures of pretty cobblestone streets or their lunch. <laughs> like, what what drew you to political unrest? Um, I was just kind of interested in the stuff I was studying. Um, my master's program was in violence, conflict, and development. And so it was kind of a hybrid program of understanding the roots of violent conflict and then also a history of international conflicts and how that relates to international de- development regimes and how you know groups like the UN or UNICEF or other um, national development agencies are trying to actually impact the world. Um, it was kind of, a th- I was very interested in educationally, but I think the creative uh, aspect of photography that was kind of, I'd kind of shoved under the bed in high school thinking I, you know, really need to be more serious about my life kind of merged. And I, you know, I started taking pictures and I said, well, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should try to do this. And I have some friends who are, who are great photographers now the same age who probably kind of started doing the same thing and much more successful in photography at that time. But 
I really wanted to give it a shot. Um, I, even to the point where I flew uh, back to East Timor, where I had done an internship at the UN after college, before grad school, and tried to cover their election. Um, barely, didn't really know what I was doing at all. Um, I wish I knew what I knew now about journalism and producing. Um, I got one image published in time online and that was kind of enough for me to you know just keep going but the you know the 5d mark ii had come out and and everyone was shooting video and wanted video and i just kind of was like okay i'm gonna figure this out and it the you know the slope just kind of went in that direction and you know slowly taught myself how to shoot video and i came back from that trip and ended up shooting for a, a food show in wisconsin um which is not international conflict or civil unrest at all but it really allowed me to kind of figure out how to be a videographer or a shooter or a cinematographer what role did your education play in your work i mean i can imagine that going into these situations with a background on the issues must help right I mean, whether it's, you know, whether it's a protest in the United States or, you know, a dangerous place overseas or just, you know, a, a local story or a domestic story in the United States. I mean, being educated outside the realm of the craft of, of, of holding and operating a camera allows you to engage better. So, I mean, if your producer is busy or there's not an option for them to come with you, you're able to throw pointed questions and, and kind of produce behind the, from behind the camera. And so I, I, I think... It doesn't necessarily inform me. I'm a little bit more aware of, of the political situation in the places I've been because of, of my educational background. Um, and I think it, it can make you relate. I mean, I, and I'm not, you know, uh, drawing a strike against anyone else, but, you know, it's helpful to be, um, I guess let me say this, some of the best filmmakers that I admire the most never went to film school. Uh, the best documentary filmmakers and the best journalists because it's, I, we kind of, I see it as a trade that, you know, is, can supplement, you know, your worldview and, and help you interact with the world. Um, so having a base level of knowledge uh, in whatever you're covering and being able to relate a little bit better with the people that you're, you're filming with or speaking to, you know, I think just opens up uh, and, and kind of puts, puts away barriers that may be there if, if people kind of find that you actually have no idea about where you are. And, you know, and maybe think that you shouldn't even be there based on your lack of knowledge of any sort of situation. A lot of shooters are self-taught. Do you think that there's any advantage to being self-taught as a cinematographer specifically? I mean, I think a lot of it's just barriers to entry in a sense. And uh, I mean, it's like I, people, I've had a couple of younger people that I, that are tangentially related to me, you know, friends of friends and ask me, oh, well, I, you know, I want to get into documentary film. Should I go to film school? And I think the answer is different for everybody. I think, um, going to Columbia journalism school or the new skill school or Tish or something to, to learn the craft is not something you should be ashamed of. And I'm not, and I want to iterate that I'm not actually saying that, but, you know, and it also puts you in a position to enter a network whether it be alumni network or the network of people who are in your classes with you, um, it really opens doors. Um, I think the barrier to entry and self-taught is like, you really have to spend a lot of time researching equipment. No one's necessarily going to show you how to do it or, you know, learning how to operate, learning, you know, cause some of it is very technical. I'm kind of a gearhead. And I, I think a lot of my friends uh, in the community know that, um, but on the other hand, you know, my gear obsession is more of just like how to think, make things simpler. But I think the really, to go back to the education standpoint, 
in the age of YouTube and the internet, if you really want to learn how to take better photos or shoot better video, you have thousands upon thousands of tutorial videos available. I mean, this is not 20 years ago where, you know, you got to pay for tape and the, you know, the equipment is actually probably the cheapest it's ever been. So if you've got the perseverance and the, you know, general kind of attitude and, and work ethic, you can teach yourself how to do anything. I, you know, if I would have known I was going to be this interested in, in this field, you know, 10 years ago, I, I probably would have gone to school for it. Um, I kind of just fell into it later. And now I, I'm just also very, uh, and with that, I'm just happy that I have something to fall back on. If I broke my leg or, you know, you know, really injured myself shooting or something, I, I could probably go get a desk job, you know, and, and fall back on some of my education and maybe go work for an NGO as a media officer or something like that. So but on the other hand, to, to play up the people who have had a formal education in film, you know, I didn't know what a stinger was for, for years, probably until like two years ago, because I never got a base level of education on, you know, on the industry terminology. And, and you know, when I see a, you know, a big, you know, Ari Fresnel, I freak out. I'm like, well, I've only been using LEDs for my entire life as a, or a you know, cinematography career. So like where... I have kind of, you know, grown up kind of buying my own gear, you know, using it for what I needed to do when you, you know, at a certain point you, you put me in a, maybe a studio situation, I would completely fall on my face. You know, it's, I think it's a, it's a give and take between skill sets. Um, I've slowly kind of tried to claw into their world. I, and I, and I don't think I ever will. And I'm very happy in the, the kind of, I kind of started calling it a nonfiction category. I'm not really interested in in, in shooting narrative or fiction, but I am interested in the techniques those people are using. What is a stinger? I don't even know. <laughs> it's an extension cord. And I hope someone's laughing at me right now because, you know, it's just the little things like that. I, I don't... Why wouldn't you just call it an extension cord? Uh, I mean, because there's film terminology that, that is, that's been on set for a long, long time. And I think that's where the two worlds meet. You have a very indie doc world out there that with the advent of cinema cameras, we're all kind of meeting in the middle now. You know, I know a lot of fantastic, you know, documentary cinematographers who have a very viable commercial side to their business, as I'll call it. And I'm like, wow, you know, you guys can go shoot this sick Adidas commercial. And then you're also shooting these amazing climbing docs or this or this or that. And it's, I mean, I'm generally impressed. It's if someone comes back to me and says, well, I want, you know, I don't think there's any right or wrong path. I think it's whatever works best for you in terms of like what goals you want to accomplish. And, you know, if I would say at this point in time, kind of given the political situation in the United States, people have crippling student debt, et cetera. It's like, if you want to be a filmmaker, just start being a filmmaker, start making films and you will come across your mistakes every time and just learn from them. And whether that's, you know, buying a piece of equipment that makes your life a little bit easier and cuts down on setup time that you're comfortable with, or it means watching, you know, a thousand YouTube videos, like, you know, you'll, you'll learn from your mistakes and you'll, you'll look back two years later and be like, wow, I can't believe I was doing it that way. And I still have those moments on a, you know, a, a daily basis on shoots where, you know, I get back from 10 days on the road and I go, wow, I really failed at this portion of it. You know, like what, can I do better from to maybe anticipate something or is there something that I need to learn a little bit more about? So I'm, you know, make, operating it more correctly or, or, you know, do you need an attitude adjustment because you're getting, you know, you're not getting along with your producer. I mean, I, I think these are all things that anyone who w will succeed just needs to kind of sit back and, and reflect after every time they go out and feel and see what they can learn from what they did wrong. 
Totally. Yeah. And just to your point about like going out and just doing it, there's so much equipment out there that is like mostly accessible price wise that shoots professional looking footage. And you could just rent it or buy if you want to invest and just go out and start doing it. Exactly. And, and you know, and story is, is, is king or queen. Uh, you know, I, the, the cinematography will melt away if the story is fantastic. You, I wouldn't even pay attention to it. Or I'll understand, you know, what situation they were in that necessitated it. I mean, there was a great doc, um, I think it's called The War Tapes, that came out a couple years after the start of the Iraq War in 2003. And I had just, I just watched it last year for the first time. It was recommended to me by a friend of mine. And, you know, it's shot on DV cam. Uh, but it was fantastic. Like, and it, you know, it was shot by the soldiers themselves anyway. So it, I don't care. You know what I mean? If anything, it's a better artifact uh, of, of history of what it probably was like from that time period. And so I really wish I had an Amira, but uh, on the other hand, like there's different tools for different situations. So you can't really let, you know, the excuse of not having a good enough camera really get in the way because, you know, if you handed a terrible camera to a great cinematographer, you know, they'd work with it. Yeah. Yeah. So jumping to some of your work for Vice, there's a scene, I think it's the opening scene of Revolution in Ruins shot in Libya where you're on a boat and it's really choppy water. And I'm sure it's hard not to just like go overboard. We're about 10 nautical miles or so off the coastline of Libya. And from the footage, you can tell that the boat's moving, but it's not like shaky footage. Um, how did you shoot in that environment? And were you prepared for that? And how did you prepare for that? Um, I don't <laughs> I don't like shooting on boats anymore after that. Um, you know, that, I guess, it, I mean, I was using image stabilized lenses. So if you wanted to get techie, that really does help. Um, you know, I'm still shooting in with a very running gun kit, which I have to give a, a lot of credit back to um jake burkhart and jerry ricciotti who were kind of the two managing dps over advice and um i you know i was shooting before i got to the company but you know they did have a way of configuring their rigs and stripping things down and and really kind of approaching the style you know in a way that functions for those types of environments and so preparing for that shoot is is kind of preparing is just kind of building on a bunch of knowledge i mean i got there in 2013 kind of realized what style they were going for now it's a little bit more uh, maintained in terms of there's kind of a shoot bible for to help get a sort of a standard look across the company because they've got so many people working for them now over the vice news tonight and the, the vice weekly shows but you know preparing for that uh you know it's like you carry everything you can we, we're on the boat for at least for 24 hours so i mean some of that's just body positioning i think is just kind of learning how to maintain some sort of <laughs> stability on a in, in a situation like that but other it's it's the choice of using you know some gear that people other people might see as kind of deficient like i was you know being on a boat or being in situations it's just easier to be working on stills class you know it's it's shooting on what's comfortable and, and shooting on what's compact because i've had conversations with uh, a friend of mine who used to shoot for 60 minutes uh, in washington dc and you know he had the big 17 to 120 on his Sony F5. And, you know, I, we're, I called him and asked him about some lenses the other day. And he's just like, oh, I sold that thing, man. He's like, you know, by the time you get to hour 10, you're just wrecked. So at a certain point, 
you need to make compromises in a way that so you can react to situations continually throughout the day. And I think that's kind of baseline philosophy for a lot of documentary shooters is like, yeah, we'd love to shoot on primes or better glass. But you know, can you do you have time to shoot on a prime in a situation like that? I personally, I don't think you do. It's kind of, you know, either you get the coverage and your editor's happy, uh, or you maybe were trying to be artistic and you just didn't get the footage. And at the end, you got to kind of plan for the product that's being delivered. So in the case of some of the Vice stuff, I, you know, coverage is very important. And you're, you only might have an instant um, to get something. And you can't be, you don't have time to switch lenses very often. And you got to be able to be flexible. Yeah, I can imagine nonfiction, documentary shooting, you have to kind of make a lot of sacrifices like that. Mm -hmm. And I was actually thinking of that when I was watching another Vice piece that you shot called Assad Syria. Um, I imagine there were other shooters on that piece, right? Or was it just you? That was just me, but I had a sound guy by the name of Roy Marisigan who He's kind of, everyone calls him Cowboy Roy. So having Roy there, who I still work with on the show, this Travel Channel show, really opens you up because the time that you're not miking people and worrying about audio issues and everything really allows you to work 10 times faster because, you know, you can be shooting cutaways and establishings and everything else. Um, so, you know, I've worked a lot uh, by myself with a, a producer and a host and, a, you know, oftentimes a fixer. But on the other hand, if I can, if I'm able to go out um, with the sound guy, I'm extremely happy. Um, and then it, you know, you can't always scale up the crew to have two cameras and a sound guy. But but even adding a second camera person, um, I went to Iraq in February of this year with Isabel Young and uh, a shooter named Daniel Hollis, and you know, we co-DP'd the segment, and it was just nice because we're both shooter so you know we're, we're, it was kind of two a cams in one place and so you know we could switch off and tag in and tag out doing pieces to camera um and then shooting b-roll and there wasn't really didn't need to be a lot of talk about what needed to be collected from a footage perspective because we're both thinking about what we need so it's, it's an ideal world to shoot with a person who is just as good of an operator I was shocked when you told me that you did the sound yourself on the Libya piece. What was that like? <laughs> Difficult. I mean, I don't know. You get better at it, but it's it's nice because it's you, you kind of get to come back and you have a lot of ownership over it. You know that every single shot in that piece is, is something you're responsible for, and it, you, know, you can you know you can be proud of it. But I think we've all come to the point. Even even producers, uh, hosts, and other operators. The more help, the better. I mean, it's a team effort and, you know, you get better material. I mean, I, I shot a piece in France um, as this uh, refugee camp in Calais, France was dismantled and, you know, and I was running sound and, but then the host and the sound guy came and then later uh, a, a second camera came and it momentumly, it just, we were able to get so much more, but there is a benefit of having a very small team and a very small footprint. And, and having a, a sound a sound person around, it really can make the piece. And the reason I brought up the France piece is because so much of that content that ended up in the piece while we're hiking, you know, along this railroad in the night is because the sound guy was just rolling and he's listening and he knows and he's snapping his fingers at me to be like, no, 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 you got to go shoot that because what they're talking about is really good while I'm trying to get maybe an establishing shot. And so, you know, when you're really humming with a, with a great crew, having people who are, concentrate on their specific 
portions of their role, it, it really can make things better. You know, correspondents don't have to wait. Producers can move faster. I mean, it, it really does allow the production to be better, I think. Yeah. And I'm sure it just gives you more mental space to just focus on the visuals. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much that can go wrong with sound and it probably just frees up your brain to be like, oh, I need to get this shot or change this lens. But what I wanted to ask about Syria was there must have been a lot of times where you had to sacrifice like a beautiful or an ideal shot for just like capturing something. Would you say that that's a pretty accurate description of your experience there? I think you always have to make choices and coming back with a shot of what's being spoken about or a major event or something that's a little bit shakier, maybe off, you know, a stop under or a stop over is better than no shot at all. And uh, I dated a producer and speaking to her about her pieces that I, you know, that I have nothing to do with and how much frustration there is when there isn't a shot of something, you know, or speaking to your editors and, and being really involved in the post or, you know, you understand that you really do need to just get footage sometimes. And I think, that's where art goes out the window in a sense. And I hate to say that, but it's, you know, there's just so many different spectrums, I think, of the industry. I I think Video Consortium itself has a wide variety of people who are, you know, doc news shooters, you know, people who shoot very, very beautiful things on film. But yeah, I mean, sometimes I think you just just need to get the shot and that's just more important. And so I think it's a fun challenge in a sense because it, it takes a little pressure off. You're trying to make it as... I'll use the word pretty as pretty as possible with the time given to you. And actually, you know, in a sense, you just, you just do the best you can. And, and the only way to kind of improve on that is like, listen a little more. You you can predict how people might move or situations might go. And so you can anticipate and you're ready to capture it. That's really all you can hold on to in, in cases like that, which, and it relieves you of the pressure of kind of like, Hey, um, we're in a kind of docu-reality situation. Well, how do you, where do you want them to go and how do you want them to move? Then you're like, oh, shit, I really need to think about this. Um, versus constantly just reacting, which is, I feel like I've <laughs> spent most of my career just reacting versus planning. And so even the title of director of photography for me is kind of a weird thing because it's just like, oh, I'm, I'm just a shooter, you know. I'm I'm the I'm the the reactor of photography. I'm just reacting the situation and trying to cover it in you know in a cinematic way. You've shot in some pretty crazy environments: Syrian war, conflict in Yemen, Gaza Strip, Libya. What stands out as the craziest environment you've ever shot in? Um, I mean, that Libya shoot was tough. Um, I came off like a different shoot for for. Uh, travel channel and I had like three or four days off and I went straight to Libya and we're not straight. We went to London to get visas and everything, but it was just tough. You know, it was physically tough. I mean, it was operating by yourself is, is, is tough. And I, you know, I think, you know, the team that I was with kind of knew I was <laughs> physically hitting a wall. I remember I, I had, uh, I had slipped on the boat and fell on an anchor. I still have a, like, a scar from that on my, on my stomach. I mean, that's just hard physically. I mean, that's, you know, that's not, it didn't really have anything to do with necessarily being in Libya. I think some of it just comes down to, to sometimes the psychological um, challenge. You know, you, you, oh, hey, you want to go to, you want to go to Libya? Yeah, let's go, let's go. And then you got, you know, and then you got two weeks um, 
to let your mind wander and race before you leave and what it's going to be like. I've never been there before. And, you know, and, and what, how bad could it be? And I think you're, you can become a victim of, of the press and media in itself uh, of, you know, you say the word Syria to someone and you, you don't think about delightful meals and beautiful historic cities. You know, you think of, you know, Assad, you think of ISIS, you think of just like general war and horror and the same, you know, oftentimes with Libya, and I think even, you know, maybe Iraq is starting to rebound from that. You know, it's been over 15 years since the U.S. invaded, and maybe, you know, slowly coming back around to, to the point where, oh, yeah, I was in Iraq, I was in Baghdad, it was beautiful. The old, the old market was fantastic, and, you know, we had a great experience. And it's just not something in normal conversation that people associate with some of these places, but they are really beautiful and fantastic. But I think dealing with some of the psychological anticipation of going someplace and not knowing. I think not knowing is the scariest thing. Not knowing what's going to happen, what you're going to see, what it's actually going to be like, how dangerous it's actually going to be is really the thing that, you know, I think ties people's stomachs in knots. And that happens a lot of time before you even go anywhere. Um, well, once you get there, you're kind of like, oh, okay, all right. You know, you can see, you can react, you can, you know, observe your surroundings and you can decide how you feel about them. But, you know, trying to go to, go to bed the night before and that, you know, an eight hour, 10 hour plane ride through Istanbul, um, you know, that's when your mind wanders. And I think I've always found that to be the more difficult aspect of it. Do you ever get scared when you're there? Yeah, of course. I think if you, if you don't, you're, you know, I think you need to be aware of, I think being on edge is good. I think you need to be aware of things. I mean, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely moments of, general uncomfortableness and wonder but in those moments where you're there and you're scared and you're on the ground shooting how do you keep that from interfering with the work i, I think that's the benefit of being uh, uh like a camera operator or cinematographer is that you, you see the world through a screen or a loop I, i'm not definitely not the first person to say this i you know it's definitely something i've read about people who've been working in photojournalism you know, you're, you're, you're there to work, you're working and occupying yourself with a task that is kind of complex, you know, while what you're, what you're filming might be disturbing or, or hard to look at, or, you know, it, it gives you a little bit of a couple centimeters of removal from it. You know, we filmed that Libya piece and there's a moment in the beginning of it where this little girl's screaming her head off. And, you know, that it, 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 it really disturbed me after the fact I, I got home. I remember that came out and I watched it. Then I, it was, that was a little bit like I got a little bit sick to my stomach. Sometimes looking at things in retrospect is it can be more difficult, but in the moment you're just doing your job, you know, Oh, okay. I need to get a, you know, it sounds actually quite terrible. Uh, if you're going to relate it to what I just said about this little girl, it's like, you know, yeah, okay. I need to get a wide. I need to get a tight. I need to move on. Okay. What else is happening over there? Like, you know, you've got 10 minutes to, to film an event as it happens and you're one, you're one camera operator. Like you, you, you can't be feeling anything. You got to just be working or you're just not going to succeed in covering it appropriately. And then by failing to do that, you're failing to, you know, represent it to the world basically. Thanks so much for listening. Rough Cut is hosted and produced by me, Jenny Butler. Our theme music is by Zach Wright. Our design is by Adam Glucksman. Our audio engineer is Han Su. 
The podcast is co-produced by Sky Dillard Robbins, who's the founder and executive director of the Video Consortium. And all of our guests and the people who made this podcast happen are in the Video Consortium. And for the filmmakers who are listening, we'd love for you to check us out and maybe join. So the Video Consortium is a creative community of the world's top nonfiction filmmakers and video journalists. We're all based throughout the world, but we have chapters in New York, L.A., San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Paris, and a bunch more coming soon. You can visit us at videoconsortium.com and find us on all of the social things. And if you're in one of our chapter cities and want to attend an upcoming monthly gathering, which are secret parties slash screenings of sorts, just shoot us an email, info at videoconsortium.com. And if you want to learn more about Rough Cut, you can visit roughcutpodcast.com and maybe shoot us a note. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.